So Anushka and I were talking today about this talk and what topics were up in the group. And there's one that I'd like to just start with that's sort of small. Why mindfulness of the body? Because it is here. That's... um, On the relative level, there's a lot of benefit to this, and even the very simple one of training our attention, which is an act of power on its own that, you know, many corporations are vying for your attention, spending a lot of money on that. Um, Not to be led by the nose, uh, where through life, at the mercy of our conditioning or of the forces in our world. Secondly, many of the ordinary ways that bodies are seen in our regular life. This kind of goes on from the first point. Uh, The ways bodies are constructed culturally are wicked. I'm going to say that nasty word. There's so many instances I wouldn't need to give a list, but um, 66% of high school girls in this country would rather be mean and stupid than fat. That's something. I mean, that's horrible. It's a sad thing about body image. And think of all the havoc that is wrecked by gender and skin color and all the pain that comes, the harm that comes from not understanding the nature of the body in a more universal way, which is what we're trying to access here is something of the universal in the particular or through the particular or through how things show up for us. And I'll say at some point in this talk that awareness of the body can lead to a depth of truth that's not easy to see from the surface. And it has taken work. It takes work. Um, It takes going through some pain and suffering. But it has a kind of infinite depth. So the last of the awareness teachings that the Buddha offered about the body was the one that's kind of like the New Yorker cartoon where there's this elephant on the analyst's couch and the elephant is complaining that no one acknowledges my presence. I come in a room and nobody (laughs) acknowledges me. (laughs) Now that I have you laughing, death, death. (laughs) We've been softening you up for this. As we let go of our concept of the body and our fixed ideas, we look inside the appearance and see that it's composed of anatomical parts. Um, you know, that leads to seeing that it's not owned by me. It's not sufficient to label this body as a self. We could give a whole talk on that, which we didn't do. Um, those talks, of that the practice of looking at the anatomical parts begins to balance our attitude and create some stability. Um, But I remember reading the list of the 32 parts at the end of the talk, and, you know, there's spittle and stuff, contents of the stomach, and we're actually meant to move through the repulsion that we feel. When you're doing that as a concentration practice, you make the list and then you say, repulsive, and you enter the first jhana. Acknowledging the feeling of yickiness, you enter a state of peace. So there's a lot to this practice, and it can be a really like a passionate one. It's not only a detached kind of practice. 
say with the um, anatomical elements we're preparing to contemplate death and also with the uh, four elements of the uh, body as we practice this morning with Anushka, like by not owning the elements of the body by saying that we're part of the earth, that's a little bit approaching dust to dust as they say in the West seeing the body less personally and that we don't own it or control it and really letting that be true as kind of an ongoing statement in our life. We didn't choose which body we had and we don't choose to let it grow old. Nonetheless, it's doing that. As the poet A.R. Ammon said, the wind said, I am the result of forces beyond my control. (laughs) So the body is like the wind. So in Anushka's talk last night, she was dropping the pencils, you know, and it's as inevitable as that. But we don't really see it, even though I guess I was thinking this talk should be dedicated to the many people we know who have died and who are dying now. And even the people we don't know, all those people who have passed through that door. And yet we don't internalize it. We defend against it as if it were a horrible thing to like accept that we will die. And in fact, in this practice, it's turned around to being like a really useful thing. So last night after Anushka's talk, I actually threw over this entire glass of water. And I thought, well, that's a little bit of a prelude to this talk. It's like... <laughs> so I hope you don't... Uh, feel dislike of this topic. If you do, please just hold that in your hold that in your heart as actually part of the attitude about dying itself. Um, or you may hate me if you wish. That's okay. <laughs> so internalizing the fact of death, um, how difficult it is for us to think of really to accept the deaths of those we have cared for and the impending deaths of some that we love and are attached to, and our helplessness in that sense. I think we often think about it in a too superficial a way for it to actually count. It just comes up as a specter that scares us. And it's worthwhile dwelling on it to, just like when I said about getting over the repulsive, repulsive, to say, like, it's hard to approach it. Really, it is. The way that I talk about it will sound kind of glib and superficial, but when push comes to shove, it's not that easy. It's not an easy fact to take. Steve Jobs wrote in one of, in a uh, commencement address in 2005 that when he was 17, he read a quote that said something like, if you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. (laughs) (laughs) And he said he's used that thought he would ask himself every morning, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? And if the answer was no for too many days in a row, not just one day, but if it was too many days in a row, then he realized that he would have to change something. And in that regard, I feel it's always so precious when people come to retreat because these are really days of our lives. These are days that count that we spend in this way um, trying to generate something of real value for ourselves and for others. Like, It's easy to lose sight of that when we're distracted in a walking meditation or kind of um, absorbed in some you know, rehashing or something like that, that we're actually trying to thrash our way out of the net in a way. 
So he says, Jobs goes on saying, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. So he goes on a little bit in that vein. And he's speaking as someone for whom the idea really struck home as it may have for some of us, the notion that we will die, not just in sort of terrified, self-torturing images that just come recur and recur, but taking to heart that our time is limited here. What do we want to do with our life within the constraints and possibilities that we have? Because it's like we can't necessarily do just anything, which is an interesting thing. Like we also have a life in which there are some limits that are financial or health-wise or something like that. We have to acknowledge that there are some constraints So we may have to pick and choose among the many things on our bucket list, which ones really count and which ones we can do, which starts to move toward a sense of value rather than gratification of meaning, rather than endless, um, you know, maybe there's a couple of places in the world that you want to see. But going around the world in a sailboat might be a good thing for a few years, but it might also mean that we are letting go of near and dear ones and what do our relationships mean, etc. So anyway, that is a personal assessment that everybody has to make. But something like cultivating relationships, um, asking forgiveness for things, um, figuring out how we can die without those kind of profound regrets about what kind of person we were, I think that's really important. And since, in a sense, this is a you know, spiritual retreat, even if it's also stress-reducing retreat, I want to just talk about that level. One of the primary teachings about the limitation of life is to realize the preciousness of each day and each moment and of life itself, which is what we all have, no matter what. Steve Jobs had a lot of money to act out his fantasies. And, but each of us has life. And each life contains its blessings. And so many blessings we overlook, so many things we take for granted, that it's worth cultivating a kind of actual dedicated practice of appreciation for what is beautiful, like things that don't cost money and friendships and sunlight and you know, having a roof and having enough food, which not everyone has in this world. When my father was dying, he kind of went, underwent a transformation. I think he just kind of saw some of the futility of certain of his ways of having been. And he started, he actually gave me a few spiritual teachings, which was unusual because he'd been a very kind of hard-minded guy. Um, But one of them was just, life is beautiful, Katie, he said. And I've really taken that on to appreciate, like, life itself is beautiful, And life includes death, like they're not really separate. The fact that we're alive also means that we'll die. So how can we open our hearts in the face of this? What would it mean? And there's not necessarily a path for that. There's not a technique for that. It's kind of a big, it's too big of a question to answer with a formula. And then after the precious life and after the appreciation, whatever we've gotten, whatever we've done, Whatever we've been, whatever we know, we'll have to let go of all of it. So in a sense, now I'm turning the page, and that's where the meditation on death also begins, like another 
piece, a step beyond into what? We don't know. So the final body meditation in the sermon or sutra or um, tract or map of how to meditate on the body is to see yourself as having already died. Like, because we have the basis of our own appearance, um, because we've seen ourselves in the mirror and we know we have a body, to imagine what it will be like when there's no life in it anymore and to sort of view it as if you were someone else coming across it or being at your own funeral kind of thing which sort of goes against a very, very, very profound biological instinct to stay alive and to stave off images such as this and to admit that finality rather than keeping trying to live. And it's not saying that you want to bring that moment closer by any deliberate means other than your imagination to sort of really desensitize yourself or come to an understanding. So the Buddha says, as if, as if you were to see your corpse cast away in a charnel ground, one day, two days, three days dead, bloated, livid, and festering, you apply to this very body, this body too, such is its nature, such is its future, such is its unavoidable fate. And then you're asked to imagine a sort of the old-timey graveyard where like the animals are eating your corpse and stuff, and then finally... Um, until you're completely decomposed and have disappeared. You know, there's whole phases of doing it which people undertake as a practice in monasteries. And then the last few lines of the teaching are, or the this is really a map of technique in a sense, like this is what you're supposed to do in order to achieve the other result. It's not just focusing on the, yourself like rotting away. That's not The goal is not necessarily only to see yourself rotting away, but to go through the process of letting go that comes from deliberately bringing it on, in a sense, bringing it on to yourself in a serious manner. And the last lines of the teaching are, and he remains, he or she remains independent, unstained by, and not clinging to anything in the world. That's where it's going, unstained, independent, and not clinging to anything in the world. That's the state of the mind that's being cultivated in every Buddhist practice is letting it go and letting it be. And again, that's not separate from cultivating causes and conditions for a better world. It doesn't just mean like letting every terrible thing happen at all. This is a very specific and targeted practice to liberate our mind in a way to bring courage and and maybe to be able to face the conditions of the world in a way. And I did this. I mean, I, I... did it at various levels of my own practice maturity. Like at one uh, three-month course, somebody had a hold of some corpse pictures of people who had drowned and stuff, and we were passing them around in our room, kind of going like, ooh, like that, and like, ooh. But it didn't, it was more like uh, kids doing it, like thinking like, oh, we're going to get our meditation to go faster by doing this, something like that. It didn't, it didn't really strike home. <laughs> It was actually almost more of a distraction from coming back into the meditation hall, to be honest. More recently, I tried doing it um, as a part of doing this body meditation in uh, several retreats. 
And I seemed to see myself lying like in the forest and sort of cold and pale lying there like with the rain on my face and stuff and still looking like myself, not going on into all the rotting kind of stuff. And the imagination of my own annihilation I had once when I thought um, I had breast cancer for a while and I was quite terrified by it at first. It was like the idea of that I might no longer be was more scary than I had anticipated. But I had to go through the shock of it and I did some work on it, which I'll tell you about more later in the talk. But I did feel quite a degree of letting go and letting be and peace in looking at the image of my own body as dead already with like nobody in it. it I realized that, well, there was nobody in it in a sense, so it was kind of easy to see it. It was no longer me, it was no longer mine. So this meditation about the corpse um, thing can have also a, a way of making a human being useful. In um, Thailand during the 2005 tsunami, there, was a, there were 5,000 unidentified bodies that were, had been in the sun and in the water for a long time, and monks took care of those bodies as part of their practice. They were able to come up close to it and uh, really feel compassion for those that they were cremating, including about 2,500 foreigners or tourists who had been there, but 2,500 locals, about half and half. They interviewed a monk um, during that time, and he said, the purpose of this traditional meditation is simply to hold in your mind very clearly that when we look at a living person, we're seeing only the external aspect of that person. We sort of live in denial of the fact that we have all these organs and bones and liquids and fluids. We're obsessed with externals. No one wants to see the inside, but we try to hold them in an equal light. And he said, went on and he said, this corpse meditation sounds incredibly gruesome and almost bizarre, but it's totally normal and understood in Thailand. This is what monasteries are for. They remind us of the true nature of life which is its impermanence and transitory nature. Impermanence is at the heart of this place, he said. And also this one, and this one. Why is the body worth contemplating? Because it's impermanent, and because the contemplation of impermanence leads beyond the clinging to permanence. And it's that non-clinging that is really important here. It's almost enlightenment itself. So dying will be letting go of everything we know. It's kind of like the ultimate transition. And it's really uh, not meant to be depressing, this. It's really meant to kind of brace us up, as I said earlier on, that life is also beautiful and transitory. And when my dad was in his last days, he. Um, had this huge tumor in his stomach, so he couldn't eat very much. And I was um, spending time with him around that time. That's when I canceled the other retreat that I couldn't teach here. And I stayed with him in, for a week or a month. Actually, it was almost a month. And I know that many of you have had this experience, maybe with loved ones and maybe as hospice workers and stuff. But the beauty that sometimes comes out in people. And so I. Um, had to leave where he was staying because there were too many people hanging around and my stepmom started to go crazy, so she kicked several of us out of the house for a little while. And then we, we had to come back almost immediately because he really started dying. But 
I would call him around the dinner hour because that's when he would be awake and people would be around. And I asked him at one time, Dad, what did you have for dinner? And he said, uh, I had a banana, a piece of banana, and a strawberry, and a raspberry. And then he said, oh, they were delicious. Yeah. And toward the end, it's, it feels like those appreciations are just magnified. So that's something about kind of bringing the death emotion closer to us as a value to see like what we have. So in the teachings, there are sometimes teachings that are like with attempted kind of shock value. You know, this thing we call a corpse so fearful to behold is already right here, our own body kind of thing. Like they are, some of the old masters get, you know, sort of, or try to describe it in a really vivid way so that we will um, believe it. When the living lie down to sleep on piles of furs and soft sheepskin rugs, they start to feel uncomfortable after a while and keep on turning over. But once you're dead, you just lie there with your cheek against a stone or a tuft of grass, your hair bespattered with earth. Kind of um, good writing. And good writing with feeling. So it's not a dead practice. It's actually very much a live practice to move through it. So we might not be able to be seeing our own death actually directly, but um, we do know that many other people have died and we've witnessed it, and yet somehow we still keep it at a distance from ourselves. Like we're very absorbed in the business of living, and in a sense, that's not wrong either. Like life needs to be about life, and there are things that we have to do to sustain our life that take up quite a lot of our time. And, you know, even some of us have said, like, we need to take more time for self-care to keep our body from breaking down. We need to rest. We need to have naps. We need to not give away so much of our energy in trivial pursuits or sometimes even giving it away to other people who seem to deserve it. Like, we have to hold on to ourselves and nurture a life of stability and health. That's also part of the practice. And yet, to prepare ourselves for this ultimate kind of letting go, having seen that everyone else has done it, it's in a certain sense, we lack the compassion or the empathy to realize that it's us, to really bring it in. The Buddha saw that when he saw his first dying person, so it's said, you know, I think the story of his meeting, uh, leaving the palace and seeing a sick person, a dying person, a corpse, just one time may not, may it might be sort of a compressed, mythified version, but the sense that when he understood that others die, he understood that he too would die. And he sort of charged out of his regular life to seek a kind of solution to this problem that would be valid for himself because it said all the pride of his life and youth left him and he saw that this would happen to him also. But then his search for something that would go beyond birth and death uh, was something he undertook for everyone. And I feel that since he was the ruler of this kingdom, he had a sense of kind of responsibility. I don't know his life story has been mentioned. I think that he was a prince and he had a lot of pleasure. Then he went undertook this quest to really see what goes beyond life and death. What can be happy in a world where there's so much suffering? How can we be happy? He also left 
his home life out of a dislike for the fact of having to die. You know, it's not that he was um, thinking it was a great thing. Later on, after his enlightenment, he was asked, what's the most amazing thing in the world? And he said, it's that most people don't realize that they're going to die. They don't think about it. But he was very concerned with us, both in the fate of dying, like he knew he would and he did, and um, with not being awake to it for whatever it might do to us. He was trying to do it in a healthy and compassionate way, like in the staff dining room just now, we were talking about how um, it seems that there was a study that people who uh, listen to a lot of really loud, heavy metal music are inured to images of death and gore. They just don't, you know, they don't register much emotion when they see that, and maybe that's a desensitization. But is it compassionate? I don't know. And um, there's that seeming connection between seeing a lot of fictionalized violence and being willing to kill other people, which is not where we're going with this teaching at all. You know, that <laughs> the act of killing. Um, I know like when they, my dad was zipped into the body bag, I had a horrible feeling of like, I didn't want them to close the zipper over his face, kind of like that he was we might suffocate in there. And then I realized, no, you know, he's actually already gone. It was a strange thing, like to relate to a dead person as the person still that they were. And that quality of pain, like in the practice with our trained attention, even the way that we approach the pains that we feel in the body, like the pains that we feel in the heart are to be approached in the same way, to be able to get close to them and not to run away so that we can stand by. Um, as people are dying and as we are dying our own self. George Eliot said, take this present suffering as a painful letting in of light. So in our most cultures, we do love and care about each other and we uh, sort of naturalize being horrified and frightened. And this is not considered like the highest expression in Buddhist practice. It's considered that um, Weeping and wailing will disturb the person who's dying and uh, not let them go in peace, like not make them feel like they can leave sort of thing. And maybe that depends on culture. Like maybe if in certain cultures, if you weren't crying, the person wouldn't feel like you loved them, you know? Like, so it's, I think it's also a matter of communication and, and mutual understanding. But what would it be to be able to face the fact of death without aversion? What would that feel like? And what would it feel like to have enough compassion when someone else is dying to really realize that it's not, um, it's kind of like that's also us. Not so much that it will also happen to us, but it's also us. So imagine a prisoner, this is a practice that's suggested, in the, imagine a prisoner condemned to death by the ruler and being led to the place of execution or a sheep being caught and tied up by the butcher. When you think of a condemned living being, instead of thinking of their suffering as belonging to someone else, imagine that it's you. Ask yourself, what would you do in that situation? What now? There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no refuge and no one to protect you. You have no means of escape. You cannot fly away. You have no strength, no army to defend you. Now, at this very moment, all the perceptions of your life are about to cease. 
you will have to leave behind your own dear body that you've sustained with so much care and set out for your next life. What anguish. Train your mind by taking the suffering of those condemned beings upon yourself. It's a super development of an open heart of compassion. In the traditional sutras, suttas, there's this story much told of the woman who lost a child who was grieving very much for the death of her baby. And she was someone who had not been in a very good position before she got married. And she married into a wealthy family and um, that made a real difference to her status. So when she lost her son, not only did she lose this dear being, but it also meant that she was probably gonna be put out on the street. So it was a real like super disaster for her. And she pretty much had what we'd call in therapy, I guess, unresolved grief or something. She was really um, beside herself and she brought her baby to the Buddha and said, can you bring him back to life? I hear that you're a really special person. And he said in his tricky way, I will do that if you can go and bring me a mustard seed from the house of someone who has never known death, never known a close person to die. So she went around trying to borrow this mustard seed and um, found that no one could say that they hadn't been touched by the death of another. And often that story is told as a way of that she just saw that everyone had had the same thing, but I also feel like she probably heard the stories and she probably got some care for her heart from everyone who said how sorry they felt for her because they knew what she'd been through. And in that sense, to evoke like a kind of collective ability uh, in the Sangha to practice together and to acknowledge like the losses that all of us have had. You know, as a teacher, when I listen to what people go through, I think about what I myself have gone through. And although I can't, I haven't gone through everything that everyone has gone through, I do know that everyone brings something to this room, that everybody brings pain here and everybody brings losses here and everybody brings injustices that we've suffered just by living in a human form. And there's something about opening the heart to compassion that really brings healing and kind of makes, helps make some sense of it all, that we're at least not alone in that, no matter how alone we may feel. So to prepare for our death is another thing. Like we acknowledge that it will happen and then what do we do in that phase? Like we might really want to do certain things, like fun things and or see certain parts of the world or make amends in some ways and to live in a good way. In Buddhism, it's also considered that your state of mind at the time that you die is a good, is an important thing to be able to die oneself in calm and joy. And I must say that it was a big relief to me that uh, my father went through that final process. It was like he had been in some ways a difficult dad, you know, and that he was very forgiving and loving and it felt like with his daughters around him, it felt like he acknowledged that the many achievements of his life, which were like he was a pretty successful corporate guy, although he, I then learned that he was really unhappy in the second half of his career, which I hadn't known. He was finally willing to tell the truth about a lot of stuff, which was really a relief. And acknowledge how much he really cared for his kids, which in his earlier stern 
life. I think he felt like he had to keep up some kind of appearance while he was alive in a certain way to be like this certain kind of guy and certain kind of man, you know, tough and stuff. But to really finally feel the breakdown of all that was beautiful and important, and it kind of changed the whole sense of my life. You know, and there might be room to wish that any one of us could do that sooner. So enjoy certain parts of our life that we might not have if we weren't, you know, if, if we ask forgiveness now or we make those movements now, what might our life be like with our heart more broken open and important things more to the front? Another way of looking at and being ready for dying is just to look at the impermanence of daily existence that none of us really knows when we'll die. And one moment is very much like another in that sense. Like if you think hard about the last moment of conscious life, it's not going to be like a much different moment. I remember when I was doing my 100,000 Tibetan prostrations and I came to the last one. It was very much like all the other ones. It just happened to be the last. <laughs> you know, And it was a completion in a way, but it was also like a teaching that it's like there's not a like a piling up like every moment is going to be like this one you know we may be less cognizant there may be like ways that the death process affects us that we don't know but I do believe that as best we can living as good of a life as we can is going to create the energy that is helpful for us at that time the habit patterns like the Cambodian monk Mahagosananda who um was a really loving being through his life. And he did the kind of metta for the body that Emily has been sharing too. May my head be happy, that kind of thing. When he, before he died, he began to um, lose his cognitive abilities a little bit. Like we always called him the, the Arhant with Alzheimer's. You know, he was just really cheerful and very childlike. He would get absorbed in one thing and then another and he could remember one teaching which he called feeling is the eater. So I remember one time I was giving a Dharma talk on some like insanely intellectual level because I didn't really get how to give a Dharma talk then or now, but he started saying, no, 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 don't teach this. Feeling is the eater, feeling is the eater. We are a slave to pleasure. We are a slave to you know, turning away from unpleasant feeling, but he still had like a few things to give and he really offered them with enthusiasm. And I felt much that, in his case at least, it was really based on the depth of his previous practice, that he'd cut some pretty deep grooves in his mind so that when the surface vegetation of his brain was all chopped down, the grooves were still there. And we don't know. We don't know what it will be like for any of us, really. Um, But I think if we can make it more likely for us to go that way, um, that would be good. And that involves trying to see how do we handle like unwelcome conditions in our practice now. Itching and I had a terrible headache yesterday, like really serious, and it wasn't really possible to be mindful of it. So it was kind of needing to look for some other resources other than like going right at the pain. It's also advice from body meditators that um, it may not be the best idea if you have headaches to pay attention to headache pain. Like almost other pain is good, but headache pain can kind of get somehow exacerbated by attention. But anyway, it was like going down into more like just the capacity to accept, even if there didn't seem to be a lot of resources to work with something that felt so extreme and still kind of show up as best I could um, 
was part of it. And I did think of it since I was getting ready for this talk. Like, and because we're in this environment, like, what will it be like if I have like a terrible pain at some point? You know, how will I cope with it? Like, sometimes there's that kind of pain or kind of being sick where you just feel like it, it's all you can do is just to even lie in bed and be there and be with it. It's very kind of profound body meditation, body awareness meditation is of great help. And that's what you might end up doing at some point, you guys, when you don't have other options. Maybe you won't want to get up and get cups of tea at that point, so that could be a good part of the practice for you. I don't know. <laughs> but everything in the body is arising and passing away also. Like when we look into the sensations and stuff, it's just coming and going. Like the way that our body movements all get lost and the way yesterday has disappeared into the great vacuum cleaner of history. Like never coming back. This morning isn't coming back. The beginning of this talk isn't coming back. And that last word that I said has gone also. <laughs> Strange. So try to feel a sense of courage and joy and like reason, reason why to face difficulties too um, in your practice. Difficult transitions can be like micro deaths or not even so micro like when we have to face the unknown of losing something big in our life, like a job or a partner or something like that, that not knowing quite what to do at the beginning. Or for me, like starting a new chapter in writing, it's like always like this. It doesn't even fit on the blank page, the kind of terror that is felt of not knowing where it's going and whether it will ever work out. You know, What's it like to be with that kind of thing? when anything unwanted gets thrown into your lap. Think about your coping style, like you're developing something with that. The suggestion of noticing the facts of everyday life, of moment-to-moment -moment existence, is also very useful in facing death, where we come to the beam of sunlight on our face, that immediacy of the moment being a place of real healing for now and then like when one has a kind of a diagnosis and it's like you see how much your mind can torture itself with the diagnosis itself and how much misery there can be where if you were able to work more skillfully with your thinking process you might be able to set it aside the theme of my father is recurring in this like when he was known to be inescapably dying, I called him once and said, how are you doing? Like, how's your mind? And he said, well, you know, every day is the best day I'll ever have. And if I were to think too much about what's coming, it would just be inventing things to hurt myself with. So he used that discernment to just um, set aside thoughts that brought suffering, which he viewed as having absolutely no usefulness to him in that situation. Like, there are times in living life where it's important to let in certain things that feel painful, like maybe this relationship isn't working kind of thing. Or like I've said, I don't want to be doing this too many days in a row. Like that's a kind of pain that we need to get understanding from. But some kinds of thoughts don't seem so useful, such as those that um, are merely filled with a kind of terror where if we sort of gear down 
and we go through it on the level of the present moment, which is what I did the time when I got diagnosed with breast cancer that I, don't, I didn't end up having or I had some stuff worked on and they figured it, if I had it, it was gone anyway. They couldn't really figure it out. But that's what I ultimately did. I just kind of dropped into the stream of life in a way, moment to moment, and I uh, did some things that I enjoyed to sort of get my mind lightened up, but I felt like that, like sort of hunkering and letting the thoughts be going overhead a little bit, like I was in a battle trench or something, like walking along a trench instead of like up there with the thoughts that were like gonna hit me in the head, something like that. Like I lowered into like body, daily, micro slice the time, look at this T, this is here, this is stronger than a thought. The thought is like a fiction. It has a lot of energy, but it's also like susceptible to being let go of. We can also sort of die into dying. That's heroic in a sense. Like, know that we'll lose what personhood we have. I know a, uh, my, one of my roommates sort of in the monastery we were in in Rangoon was a, a woman who's of Jewish heritage and uh, became a nun, still is a nun, and is a very highly ordained kind of uh, stereotype-busting lady. She lives in Canada now, and she wrote a piece about um, when her grandfather uh, was given an exemption from being uh, taken away to be murdered by the Nazis. And he chose to go along just to spend a little more time with his daughter. So the last view of him was him carrying her to the train on his shoulders, and nobody ever saw him again after that. But he, like, willingly went to that out of love. You know, he, he took it on. And he let go of himself into the face of that, which he could not control, unjust as it was. It can seem unjust that we all have to die. It really can. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, where's the design in that? Why doesn't it just sort of like terminate and be done? I don't know, something like that. So the Rohitasa Sutta that uh, Anushka was citing, um, the question was, is there somewhere we can go where birth and death won't? be, where we won't be touched and affected by this. And it's a, it's a sweet story. I mean, it's a main concern of every spiritual tradition, including this one. And it was a little, I like that story because I think the young being who was asking, he would like, it's the same thing as Star Trek or something. Like I went out into the universe to see what there was to see, but everything that, you know, I ended up dying on the way without, in a certain sense, coming home. And the Buddha says, um, you know, friends in this very fathom-long body endowed with perception and with mind, I make known the world, the arising of the world, and the way leading to the end of the world. What he's talking about is he's flipping it from the material world to our personal world. That's part of the Buddha's way of doing a riddle. Like, What he's saying is that the only world that matters is the world that we see sort of like from here out not the divided world of me and it, but this kind of living cosmos that is seen through our experience that's only ever always an experience. And that quality of being in an experience is critical. Like That's part of why we work with awareness in this practice. There's a long commentary on that sutta about um, what does that mean, the cessation of the world, cessation of the personal world, 
um, the world by which one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world. And I think the critical word here is the personal part of it. Um, that we seem to be, our body seems to be composed of the four great elements that arise and pass away in our experience. But he's not really teaching about the externals of it. Like, what would be to bring an end to the way that we need to be a person? Could we bring an end to that here and now and actually be beyond the grip of dying, beyond the grip of the notion of dying? So he goes on to say that this kind of ultimate letting go leads to um, consciousness that doesn't manifest, endless and lustrous on all sides. It is here that the elements, earth, water, fire, and air, find no footing. They find no root. So there's a way of actually going beyond suffering that goes through this ability that we have to be aware, that we have to be aware without reacting to things. So we can be unbound by our circumstances so that death doesn't condition us anymore. And it may be something so simple as being able to be joyful at the end. My sister who works in a hospital says, you know, there are people who are angry and then there are people who deal with it well, they're pretty joyful and they're grateful. And they say, well, I know I won't be here this time next year, kind of thing. They just know it and it's still like not a burden on them. Thich Nhat Hanh describes it in a Buddhist way where he says, this body is not me. I'm not caught in this body. I'm life without boundaries. I've never been born and I never died. Over there, the wide ocean and the sky with many galaxies all manifests from consciousness. Since beginningless time, I've always been free. Birth and death are a door through which we go in and out, a game of hide and seek. So smile and take my hand and say, wave goodbye. We shall always be meeting again at the true source on the myriad paths of life. He's always saying things like, when you eat an ice cream, see the cloud in the sky, kind of thing, that, that interdependence is a form of immortality, like not to live as if we're a line that begins and ends, but to think of like the effects that we have as being like part of our life, like what we're doing as rippling out sideways, kind of. And another um, more poetic version of being able to die without being touched by death in a certain way, uh, by the fear of death, is the poet Jorge Luis Borges, who when he died in Geneva said, this is the happiest day of my life. Um, Someone who was close to him at that time said he entered death like a feast with courage, lucidity, and happiness and not having to be wake up the next day and be himself again, kind of thing. That was his feeling. He was always kind of a mystic. He wrote this very beautiful poem, which I'll read in Spanish and English. I know there are a few people who speak Spanish here, so bear with me, those who don't, and then I'll translate it. Um, it's called Nubes. No habrá una sola cosa que no sea una nube. Lo son las catedrales de vasta piedra y bíblicos cristales que el tiempo allanará. Lo es la odisea que cambia como el mar. Algo hay destino, algo hay distinto cada vez que la abrimos. El reflejo de tu cara ya es otro en el espejo. 
y el día es un dudoso laberinto. Somos los que se van. La numerosa nube que se deshace en el poniente es nuestra imagen. Incesantemente la rosa se convierte en otra rosa. Eres nube, eres mar, eres olvido. Eres también aquello que has perdido. Clouds, number one. There will be nothing that isn't a cloud. Clouds are the cathedrals of vast stone and biblical, and biblical stained glasses that time will crush. The Odyssey is a cloud because it changes like the sea. There's something different every time we open it. The reflection of your face is already different in the mirror, and every day is a doubtful labyrinth. We are those who are leaving. The manifold cloud that is t falling apart at sunset is our image. Incessantly, the rose becomes another rose. You are cloud. You are ocean. You are forgetting. You are also everything that you have lost. Thanks. Let's be quiet a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.